0: Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to open your word. I pray that you would meet us. I pray that you would help us to truly uh, encounter you and commune with you as we listen to your word with ears of faith. God, I pray that those who don't have ears to hear what the Spirit says through the word, I pray you would cause them to become alive and to have ears to hear, to have faith, to see the beauty of Christ and the sufficiency of his salvation. God, I pray that you would work in all of us, in our hearts, what is pleasing to you. I pray the words that I say and the thoughts that all of us have would be acceptable to you. We offer them to you now as worship in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Acts 15. Acts 15 will begin in the middle of the chapter, and we are just picking up the story at the end of a very important gathering of Christ's apostles in the church in Jerusalem. It's often called the Jerusalem Council. Now to understand today's scripture, you need to remember the first half of the story, and I'll remind you. It started with a controversy in the church in Antioch, and the Apostle Paul and his co-worker Barnabas were there. They were rejoicing with the church in Antioch over how God had saved many Gentiles and his non-Jewish peoples, and the Lord brought many Gentiles to faith in Christ through Paul and Barnabas's mission work. And then the trouble started when some men from Jerusalem came, and they started teaching that These Gentiles who trusted in Christ weren't saved yet. And they still needed to be circumcised and then keep the law of Moses if they wanted to be counted as truly righteous in God's sight and counted as fully part of God's people. In addition to their faith in Christ and their faith in His work, they needed to add these works of theirs. And Paul and Barnabas argued against them. They contended that the Gentiles and the Jews, everybody, can be forgiven and counted righteous, all as a free gift of God's grace completely on the basis of Christ's finished work to be received by us simply through faith in Him. Apart from any work of ours, apart from any participation in any religious ceremony that we could engage in, by grace alone, through faith alone, In Christ alone. This is the biblical gospel. And the the troublemaker teachers from Jerusalem, they were claiming to have the apostles in Jerusalem on their side. And so the church in Antioch decided to see if this was so, and they sent Paul and Barnabas from Antioch to go to Jerusalem to ask them. That's how the Jerusalem Council came about. And in it, those apostles and elders in Jerusalem, they very clearly affirmed the gospel with Paul. In Acts 15, they said, It is through faith that we are saved by the grace of Jesus, in verse 11. And they recalled how God gave the Gentiles the Holy Spirit when they only believed on Christ before they had done anything else. God cleansed their hearts by faith. So clearly, then, no one needs to be circumcised or keep the law to be saved. Clearly, faith in Christ was enough to be saved by what Christ has done for us. Now the final word at this council belonged to the Apostle James. So look at verse 19 now, where James concludes, Acts 15, 19, Therefore, my judgment is this, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. No one one should upset them by telling them that their salvation is incomplete. And they must keep the law to be righteous before God. No, God has accepted them in Christ He's counted them righteous already by faith. He credited Christ's righteousness to them. He cleansed them. They couldn't have received the Spirit if that wasn't possible. And recognized, too, that God saved them as Gentiles. They didn't convert to Judaism first. They didn't become circumcised first. They didn't start keeping the law first. So they don't need to start living like Jews now. We don't need to trouble them and tell them they need to start to keeping what God commanded through Moses, the food laws and things like that. And so James proposes that he's going to send them a letter from the whole church to tell them what they've decided. In the beginning of verse 20, you'll see he says, we should write to them. Here's the first main point of today's passage, the letter's instructions. The letter's instructions. You'll find it in verse 20. Look there now. We should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. What? What does that mean? How is that related to what we've been talking about? Salvation by grace through faith? Well, that's an important place to start at least, that we must read this instruction in light of what they've already established. These Gentiles who have trusted in Christ, they're already saved on account of Christ's work. And so this instruction, James is not saying abstain from these things in order to be saved. He's saying abstain from these things because you are. This is not a list of things that one must do to be saved. It's an explanation of how the saved must live. You've put your faith in Christ. That's very good. You're following him. Very good. Now, this is what it looks like for you to follow him. Now, even with that settled, we still have to admit this is pretty strange-sounding discipleship material, uh, to us anyway. It was perfect for the very specific situation that the new Gentile Christians found themselves in. And these instructions will be very helpful, very practical for your understanding Of how you must live as a Christian if you will understand the basic principles that underlie these specific instructions. Now this will take some explaining to get there. So hang with me. Most of our time will be spent on this point. I think you'll see that it's worth it. It is very helpful. Verse 21. The next verse. It helps us to understand these instructions. Because here James tells us why the Gentile Christians needed to abstain from the things listed in verse 20. Look at verse 21. For, because, here's the reason, from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So he's saying, even though these Gentile Christians don't have to take on the law of Moses, they don't have to keep the ceremonies and the food laws in it, They still need to remember that the law of Moses is read in every synagogue, every week, every Sabbath service, in every city. And it's been that way for a really, really long time from ancient generations, the verse said. So the Gentile Christians need to be very careful about doing things that would be incredibly offensive to their Jewish brothers and sisters in the church... Who would have deeply ingrained conscience objections against anything that the law of Moses prohibits. Because they've been hearing and trying to keep the law of Moses for a long time. And that's the best explanation for what verse 20 means when it refers to strangled things and blood. God told Israel through Moses, don't eat blood. Leviticus 7.26 is one example. You shall eat no blood whatsoever, whether of fowl or of animal, in any of your dwelling places. And then God explained further why he told ancient Israel to do this. Leviticus 17, 10 through 14. He, he said, don't eat the blood because the life of the creature is in the blood. If the blood pours out, the creature loses his life. So you give me the blood and your sacrifices. They were to pour out the blood before the altar... To seek atonement for their sins. And it was a kind of life for life exchange in the symbolism. The animal dies, it loses its life because its blood is poured out. And that's because you deserve death as the wages of your sin against God. So the blood's not yours. Don't eat it. That's what the law of Moses said. And then this matter of things that have been strangled in verse 20, it deals with the same issue. That same part of Leviticus, Leviticus 17, 13. The Lord said, if the people of Israel hunted a beast or a bird, they needed to pour out its blood before they ate it. They needed to drain the blood. That's how the meat had to be prepared. So then the animal couldn't be strangled or choked before it was cooked and eaten because then the blood would still be left in it. So we're writing to you Gentile Christians So that you can have full fellowship and free fellowship with your Jewish brothers and sisters in the church. Abstain from blood and strangled meats. For the sake of being a real church family. Where all who believe are together and have all things in common. Like Acts 2 said. Who who don't just go to church together but they break bread in each other's homes. Day after day. We're asking you not to do these things that are offensive to other believers who might be among you. So you can eat together like a family and avoid wounding each other's consciences as you do. Okay, do you get it? In love, Christians, in love, you be willing to lay aside even what you are technically free to do for the sake of helping your brother live with a clean conscience before God and for the sake of your own fellowship with him. Now the first item in the abstain from list addresses something similar. Verse 20 has it things polluted by idols and that's explained further down in verse 29 as abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. Some some of your translations clarify even further and they Say he's talking about food or meat sacrificed to idols. So in the cities of the Roman Empire, many animals were used as sacrifices to idols in pagan temples. And then the meat that was left over would be sold in the meat market or sold out the back door of the temple. So it was readily available, good price, freshly slaughtered, taken bake. But of course... God's law strongly prohibits idolatry. Don't join the nations in their idolatry, he said. I'm the only God, he said. You shall have no others before me, he said. And so conscientious Jews would not buy or eat this meat left over from the sacrifices to idols. Some Gentile Christians would later have a hang-up with the same thing. The Apostle Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 8. And he says, the false gods of the nations, their idols, they're not real. They don't exist. The idols are nothings. So it's okay for you to eat this meat. But in line with the letter in Acts 15, he says, not all people have this understanding. Not all Christians are going to get this in their conscience. So you need to take care that this freedom and right that you have doesn't somehow become a stumbling block to others in the church if you wound their conscience, if you, do, if you encourage them to do something that they think might be sin, you are sinning against them. And you're sinning against Christ. And they are sinning if they're doing something that they think is wrong because they're intending to do wrong when they do it. The apostle addresses the same matter in Romans 14, the text I read earlier in the service. He said, you need to decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother, in the way of a Christian. I know nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for the one who thinks it is unclean. If your brother's grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. The kingdom of God is not a matter of food and drink, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for your mutual upbuilding. So here's the lesson. A Christian doesn't say, hey, I'm free to do this or that, so my brother just needs to get over it. No. The path of following Christ is the way of servanthood. You seek to please and build others up in their faith, even if it means sacrificing your liberties for the sake of loving them and doing them spiritual good and cultivating a deep fellowship with them. So that's one of the main principles of discipleship from the letters and instructions. This is the life of a Christian. You say, I will not do anything to tempt my brother to sin. I will not even do anything to tempt my brother to do something he thinks might be sin, even if it technically isn't, per se. Why? Again, because if he thinks it might be sin in his conscience, then for him it would be sin to do it. Whatever you cannot do from faith with a clean conscience, for you it is sin. Romans fourteen twenty three. You You need to remember that's true for you. For your own Christian life before God. But you also need to remember that's true for your brothers and sisters. So don't trample on their conscience. Even if it's overly sensitive. And it needs to be recalibrated. The law of Moses was read. In every synagogue from ancient generations. Week to week. In all the cities. So please Gentiles. Abstain from meat. sacrificed to idols. Or strangled meats with the blood. That was the point. Now, this call to liberty sacrificing love, it was not only for edification and fellowship, it was also for the sake of witness to Jewish unbelievers or for witness toward Gentile God-fearers who were associated with the synagogue. We want to win unbelievers to Christ. So don't live in a way that makes them think you don't care about God's loss even if their perspective about that is a little skewed. Don't live in a way that will make it hard for them to see that God has given you a new clean heart in Christ and that He's given you His Spirit in Christ. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, he said, Though I am free from all, this is 9.19 and following, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law. That I might win those under the law. Ali kosher to keep a testimony before them, to keep to keep a door open to share the gospel with them. He said, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 32 and 33, Paul urges all Christians to put on this same mindset. He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they might be saved. So salvation in Christ does not obligate you to keep the law of Moses. But, arguably, it obligates you to an even higher standard. It obligates you to live in love as a servant of your brothers and a servant of your neighbors. Even if you have to restrict your freedoms to do so. You don't get to say, I do what I do. And if other people don't like it, sorry about it. Not if you're a Christian. You've been bought with a price. If Jesus has cleansed your heart by faith, this is the kind of life that you live out of that clean heart. I live for the benefit of my brother, for the salvation of my neighbor, and for the glory of Jesus. Now, the other thing that the letter instructed the Gentile Christians to abstain from was sexual immorality. That was listed second in verse 20 and also again in verse 29. Sexual immorality was rampant in the culture that these Gentiles were saved out of and still lived in the middle of. It was even part of the religions that they were saved out of. The worship practices associated with idolatry, the pagan religions in the Greco-Roman Empire, they very often incorporated sexual immorality. So it could be that James mentions this because he knew that these Gentile Christians needed to be exhorted about this issue directly because of how pervasive it was in the culture around them. The culture they lived in was soaked in sexual immorality. And perhaps he feared, therefore, that they would be desensitized to it because of how pervasive it was. And and so, therefore, they wouldn't comprehensively turn from it. So if the other instructions in the abstain from list, they they encourage the believers to be careful about others' consciences that may be too sensitive... Here, this instruction is encouraging the believers to be careful about their own consciences that they aren't under-sensitive. We might need very direct exhortations like this about the same issue for the very same reason because our culture is awash with sexual immorality. It's everywhere. It's normalized. It's celebrated. If you aren't purposefully living and thinking in very radically countercultural ways, then you are going to have a seared conscience about sexual immorality to some degree, and then you won't abstain from it. If you have been saved by the grace of Jesus, if he's cleansed your heart by faith, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4. Not just in your actions, but in your small talk conversations, in your entertainment choices, even in your thoughts. Let me just exhort you very directly. If you are entangled in some form of sexual immorality, Christian, let this letter in Acts 15 be a wake-up call for you. Don't treat it like a small thing. Regain a Christian conscience about this. You must repent and trust in God's grace and talk to a mature brother or sister in Christ who can help and pray for you and give you counsel from God's word and encourage you and hold you accountable so that you might be healed. James 5, confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. We need each other. Now, since sexual morality is in this list of instructions, it could be that the first matter, things sacrificed to idols, it could be that fits actually more along that same line as part of the exhortation to make a clean break with idolatry and the immoral culture. Because Paul in 1 Corinthians, later 10, right, he, he said that while eating meat sacrificed to idols was was fine in your home, as long as you didn't offend your brother. Later in chapter 10 he says that if you eat that meat participating in a pagan worship service or ritual, you can't say, oh well that's fine because idols don't exist. No, that's straight up idolatry. That's something demonic, Paul says, and deeply provoking to God. So if you buy the leftover meat in the market, Eat it at home for a normal meal. That's okay. Again, if you don't, tear down your brother. But don't eat that stuff joining in on what happens in the idol temple. Don't be a part of that there or the sexual immorality that happened there either. So to to catch that difference in a pithy way, one commentator said the real issue was not the menu but the venue. Now, one reason that these matters tempted the Christians was because so much of the life of the city, even the commerce of the city, included meals and rituals connected to idol worship and the sexual immorality connected to it. I mean, to give up idols that everyone around you was worshiping, that was like the ultra being unpatriotic or something. Like you're repudiating everyone around you. You could be majorly ostracized for not... participating in these idol rituals they were a part of even the the trade guilds if you were a blacksmith the blacksmiths would get together and and sacrifice to an idol that would make their blacksmithing prosperous or something and so if you if you turn away from idolatry you can be majorly ostracized that can lead to persecution or even poverty if you're backed out of the economy and so James is urging the Gentile Christians, since Christ has saved you, you, you can't blend back into the culture around you and compromise with the idolatry, no matter the cost. You know, in verse 19, he called these Gentiles those who've turned to God. Well, that, that's, in a phrase, what faith is. That's conversion, turning to God, which implies turning from what? from all other gods, from sin, from vain things, from idols. So really, the instruction here in the letter is, we're not writing to put any extra burdens on you. You just keep turning to God. Stay turned to God, which implies staying turned from or abstaining from idolatry and immorality. All right, now we can sum up at the end here of this part of the passage, the two big principles for Christian discipleship that is found in this little letter. The first one is, in love, avoid unnecessary offenses towards your fellow believers. The second one is, in holiness, Don't avoid necessary offenses towards the godless culture around you. And that will inevitably come with living a set-apart life. The free salvation that Christ gives believers compels us to live in liberty-sacrificing love and uncompromising holiness. Jesus cleanses the heart of his people to this end. This is how people who are called by his name live. Now verse 22 tells us about the plan to send the letter. Look at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas. Leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, in Cilicia, greetings. That's a beautiful way to start. The brothers to the brothers. You're not circumcised like us. You don't live like us in many ways. You don't have to, but we receive you as our brothers because we know that we're both saved through faith by the grace of Jesus. See, when you get the gospel right like that, like they did at the Jerusalem Council, when you get the gospel right and you view other believers through the lens of the true gospel like they were doing. You cannot help but have a sense of brotherhood that binds you together with other believers. But if very, very different kinds of people are going to live brother, brother, with one another in the church, we've got to be very gracious with each other. We have to be careful to avoid unneeded offense toward one another. And Paul would say we just need to give up the things that won't build up one another. In verse 24, the letter denies that the false teachers represented the church in Jerusalem. Verse 24, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus. Again, there's an emphasis. They've all come to one accord about this. It's a unanimous decision. They all agree about how someone can be saved and how the saved must live. And then they move from discrediting the ministry of the circumcision teachers, to vouching for the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. Verse 24, we didn't tell those other guys to go teach that falsehood that troubled you. Verse 25, but we love Paul and Barnabas. They're our beloved. Verse 26, not only do we love them, we also esteem them very highly. They risk their lives for the sake of Christ. We know that's true from the previous chapters in Acts. So if you want to listen to people who truly represent what we think, listen to the leaders God already gave you, Paul and Barnabas. Now the other guys who showed up in this delegation, verse 27 introduces them. They were the men who were from the church in Jerusalem who carried the letter. Look at verse 27. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. So these men, these Man, Judas and Silas, they have authorization to tell you what we believe and teach. And it's the same that you'll find written in this letter. So no one can accuse Paul and Barnabas of you know, forging this letter or misrepresenting what the apostles in Jerusalem actually think. Judas and Silas, two of our own, they'll tell you the same thing. All right, now verse 28. The letter acknowledges that the Holy Spirit was the one that led the apostles to Uh, come up with these instructions and the conclusion about salvation that undergirded them. Look at verse 28. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, I love this, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. It's a wonderfully Christian perspective. Even when we're asking you to abstain from things, we also very much do not want to burden you with requirements that God does not require of you. We do not want your conscience to be bound by any unnecessary requirements. This is so instructive, I think. It's so balanced with what we've heard previously. Christians should strive, on the one hand, not to grieve one another with our personal liberties. On the other hand, we should strive not to burden one another with our personal conscience issues. And verse 28 endorses this heart posture. This is good to the Holy Spirit. If you relate this way to your brothers and sisters, to say, I don't want to make you stumble, and I don't want to lay any burden on you beyond what God requires. That's good to the Holy Spirit. So try not to offend other Christians, and try not to burden them with extra-biblical rules. Don't wound their conscience and don't bind their conscience to what's unnecessary in God's eyes, anything not contained in God's Word. And not only is that burdensome, the Bible actually says that that will cause people's consciences to become weaker if it's all bound up to things that God doesn't actually require in His Word. Now, these last few verses that we've read, they set up the council proposed in verse 20 and we hear it again this time in verse 29 now as it's presented in the letter that was sent verse 29 that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality if you keep yourselves from these things you will do well farewell now the next few verses tell us how the letter was received what effects it had on the church in Antioch. And that's the other main point of the chapter. We've seen the letter's instructions, and now we see the letter's effects. The letter's effects. Look at verse 30 to begin. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced. Because of its encouragement. Did you think that was a very encouraging letter? I, we understand, I think, why there was joy because they heard this news from the letter and from those who were carrying it. All the apostles agree that we're saved, there's nothing else we need to do to complete our salvation. It is done. We're righteous before God. We belong to God all because of His grace, all because of Christ, just because we trust Him. You see, the assurance of salvation brings joy. Now, they rejoiced also because they were told they didn't need to try and bear the heavy yoke of the law of Moses and all of the crusty Jewish tradition that had built up on top of that over the years. No, they had come to Christ And His yoke is easy and light. So turn to God, hope in Christ, walk in love, pursue holiness. Just keep doing these things and you will do well. How encouraging. The letter brought joy because it affirmed that even though they were Gentiles who had been outsiders from the people of God for so long, that that now in Christ... They're not just fringe beneficiaries of all of God's promises and God's salvation. All who trust in Christ have all of God's saving blessings belonging to them. Think about this also. The fact that this letter brought them joy means they didn't begrudge having to lay aside liberties for the sake of fellowship. They were happy to do it. They were because their hearts were cleansed by faith. And the spirit they received by faith was bearing the fruit of love in their hearts. So they heard what they needed to abstain from. And they were happy about that. And encouraged and said, oh yeah, we'll do that for fellowship. For witness. For holiness. Now it says a lot, I think, about the state of someone's heart the way that they respond to instructions of Scripture like these that say, you shouldn't do this. Don't do that. The believers in Antioch felt joy and encouragement when they received these kinds of instructions. Now, maybe that's incomprehensible to you. And if it is, I would encourage you to ask yourself, why? If, you, if your heart doesn't resonate like that with God's rules... What is different about you and your heart from these Christians that we find in the book of Acts? That they would be happy and encouraged by abstain from these things kinds of instructions. Whereas maybe you find them irritating and constricting and dull. Verse 32 shows us another effect of the letter. Strength. Verse 32 says, And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And more literally, you could translate this with a lengthy message. It's a great verse. No doubt, they were expositing the instructions of the letter, and they were affirming the gospel of grace that was at its foundation. And that gave strength to the believers now, when Paul took this letter to other Gentile Christians in other cities, it had the same effect. It's amazing. If you look down at Acts sixteen four. it says, As they went on their way through the cities, now in Galatia, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem at the Jerusalem Council, Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith. And a little before that, in 1541, it says Paul went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And this strengthening had to include the teachings of the Jerusalem letter, taking that to the Christians in Syria and Cilicia. And we know that because verse 23 told us the letter was specifically addressed to them too. It said, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. So everywhere the letter went, it had this same effect. It strengthened believers. And it strengthened the faith of believers. So the Antioch Christians weren't just some weirdly wired Christians that they could find strength in in instructions like these. No, all the Christians in all the places... It firmed up their faith. It made their hope for salvation in Christ more solid and stable. It increased their resolve to be devoted and steadfast to Christ. It it gave them courage. It steeled their spine not to compromise. It's, It's kind of an ironic thing that the gospel of salvation, apart from works, by grace alone, by faith alone, That that good news doesn't actually make true believers less resolved to strive for holiness. It strengthens them for holy living. And believers gain strength even from hearing very plain, direct, ethical exhortations from the Spirit like this. Abstain from sexual immorality. That gave strength to the believers to be pushed and reminded of that. Because they remembered why that applied to them. It's because, yes, Jesus has made me part of the people for his own name's sake. I'll do that. That's strengthening to me to know that God requires me this of me. It's strengthening to me to be reminded of that. And it it's strengthening to me to remember that God requires this of me, like all his requirements, not to burden me, but to bless me for his glory. Now, the effect of, of the letter here, that reminds us one reason we need to hear the instructions of the Spirit so regularly. And we need to hear the words of the Spirit taught regularly, because the Spirit uses these words to renew our inner strength, to help us to hope in Christ and live for Him. Now, another effect of the letter is found in verse 33. It's peace. Look at verse 33. It says, After they spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. So all the Christians, those who'd come from Jerusalem, those who were in Antioch, they had peace with one another on the basis of these truths. We've seen this many times. The good news that we can have peace with God because of what Christ did, that draws those who believe it together to have peace with one another too. If we keep the gospel clear, if we keep the gospel central, it will make us more deferential about more peripheral matters. And all of that will add up to our enjoyment of great peace in our fellowship. Remember when Paul wrote in Romans 14 about those conscience issues, he really emphasized peace. Romans 14, he said, Don't put a stumbling block in the way of your brother. Don't, don't put any unnecessary thing that might grieve his conscience before him. Instead, pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. And remember, he said the kingdom of God, the same chapter. It's not a matter of food and drink, but a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. When we hope in the true gospel and we make that our focus... It should make us happy to live in liberty-sacrificing love. Because that's the shape of the love of the cross that Jesus showed to us. And that will promote peace among us like it did amongst the Christians in Antioch. So big picture, the, the effects of the letter, they are showing us something really important. That agreement on the gospel. Shared faith in the true gospel It should be enough to cultivate a fellowship that is joyful and peaceful and strengthening and encouraging and lasting despite many cultural and conscience differences. Now, I know that our little church family, in here, there are not cultural differences among us that are as extreme as the jews and gentiles in the first century and i know that we don't have differences of conscience that are as radical as jewish and gentile christians in the churches in x but do we have differences cultural and conscience differences among us yes we do and it will be so until christ returns unless we become uh, the kind of church that's not focused on the gospel so that people who have conscience objections with us can't become part of our fellowship. If we're a church that's centered on the gospel, we're going to be a church where we have uh, differing conscience issues between other believers. And the good news that this verse shows us, this text shows us, is the gospel can hold us together in peace and in joy. It can, can hold together a fellowship that builds up and gives strength. And this supernatural, peaceful fellowship of love and holiness, how, how is it maintained? Well, verse 35 shows us how it was maintained in the church in Antioch. Verse 35, Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. With many others also. It's maintained by ongoing unity around the Word of God. And one thing in this church that made it clear that their unity was truly around the Word of God was that there were many different people who were teaching and preaching it. The verse said, Paul, Barnabas, and many others also. And that helped the fellowship to know that that the blessings they were experiencing was not ultimately from any man or any one teacher, but it truly was from the Word itself. And the Spirit used that. The Spirit used the Word. The Spirit works through the Word to save sinners and to strengthen the saved, to help them live lives of deferential love and courageous holiness. Now, in closing, if you are not a Christian, let me appeal to you. You know, you know. That you have not lived a life of self-sacrificing love. And you know that this is a sin against God. And you know that you will have to give an account of your life before God. Know this also. That you can be forgiven. And you can be counted as perfectly righteous before God. Because the perfect righteousness of Jesus can be credited to you. And all of your lovelessness and sin can be credited to Christ who paid for it on the cross if you will just turn from your sin and trust Him because He died and rose again for loveless sinners. You can be different too because of what Jesus did like these Christians in Antioch became. If you turn to God and put your faith in the cross, God will cleanse your heart just by faith. He'll give you a clean heart. He'll create in you a clean heart and give you the Spirit. And the Spirit will start to bear the fruit of love in you. All of this is yours. It's all free. It's all a gift of God's grace. You can have it all because of what Christ accomplished on the cross and in His resurrection. Because He loved us and He gave Himself up for us. If you just receive Christ with a believing heart. Join the people who are called by his name for eternity, for eternal joy, and for his glory. God, we thank you that you have called so many in here to be a part of that people who are called by the name of Jesus, even who have the name of Father, Son, and Spirit placed upon us. God, thank you for saving us for your glory. Thank you for how you've cleansed our hearts by faith. Thank you for the gift of justification. Thank you for the gift of the instructions of your word. Thank you for prodding us and pushing us and shepherding us and putting up guardrails for us and helping us to know how we can have peaceful, strengthening, edifying fellowship with each other. Uh, We thank you most of all for what you did in sending Christ. And we know that we could not even come to you to speak this prayer to you if it wasn't because of him. How much less spend all of eternity with you. So thank you for Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.